Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're really pleased you've been able to tune in for this evening's program. Essentially the one that we're responsible to, the one who owns these things, to whom we are entrusted to look after, is God himself. Well, if you're after a cracking title for a book, just consider something with the word fiduciary in it. You're not convinced, are you? No, I don't really blame you. In recent weeks, Dr. Corbett has been looking at some different issues under the banner of reimagining church. It's about taking another look at what our role in the church is. So this week, a cutting edge look at the church's fiduciary responsibility. Get comfortable and let's join Dr. Corbett now. My preaching mentor, Dr. F.W. Borum, who died in 1959, in his autobiography, he made a point to young pastors and even reading it some 60 years later I still took it to heart he encouraged pastors to be creative about how they entitled their sermons I'm afraid if Dr Borum was alive to hear the title of this message which is a continuing part of our reimagined church series I think he'd be pretty disappointed (laughs) The title of this message is A Church's Fiduciary Responsibility. I think he would roll his eyes at that title. In fact, even in writing, the same thing applies. Uh, My lecturers in creative writing, when I was uh, studying this at, at degree level, they they also encourage that be creative with your with your titles and and have them as a point of interest and i think if anyone's just heard my title is a church's fiduciary responsibility they'd probably yawn so i've committed the opening error that every uh, every preacher in the know and every writer who knows anything about grabbing people's attention for what you're about to say i think i've failed at the first post So with that in mind, uh, I I think I need to pray. So would you join me? Father, help me now as we look into your word and see your heart, your desire, your plan for your church. Help me to deliver your word faithfully. May people hear you and may I and my voice vanish in behind your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So having established that fiduciary responsibility is not a great title for a sermon, I think I need to just explain to you what this mysterious word fiduciary means. When it's used by a local church, of course, if you are from a banking or accounting background, you would appreciate this word. This is probably your bread and butter terminology. It's used all the time. It actually comes from the Latin word fide or feed which is where we get fidelity or trust. And so its Latin word, for those who are wordy types, is fudicarius, and it actually means trust. Into English, we translate it as fiduciary. It has to do with trust of things that belong to someone else. Ultimately, When you give money to the church, when you give of your time to the church, when you give of your talent and your expertise to the church, you're not entrusting us with those things. We are not being fiduciary about your things in a way. 
actually, when you give those things to the church, you are doing it with a heart that says, God, this is yours. I give it to you. And when the church receives it, and we have to be fiduciary, that is, we have to use these things in sacred trust. But essentially, the one that we're responsible to, the one who owns these things, to whom we are entrusted to look after, is God himself. It's Jesus Christ's church. And when you give of your money, your time, your talent, your skill, your prayers, you're giving them to Jesus. They're his. And as a pastor, let me tell you that when you come to church, when you are a part of a church family, it's not just to you that you are entrusting your soul It's that Christ is entrusting you. He is entrusting your soul to our care. It's why we as pastors have a great responsibility to shepherd you. We note that Christ actually had a a lot to say about money. For a banker, the, the fiduciary trust almost stops and starts with people's finances other people's finances but for a church as I've just mentioned it goes way beyond finance it it does include finance absolutely it does and let's not be shy about that but Jesus said this in Mark chapter 6 verses 8 to 11 he that is Jesus charged them the them being his disciples to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread no bag no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So in this sense, Christ is telling his disciples, when you go out to preach, you're not preaching to get You're not preaching to enrich yourself. You're not preaching to better yourself. You're preaching for me. I'm giving you a mission. You are stewards. You are entrusted by me with this sacred responsibility of delivering the word of God. Don't do it for money. Don't even take money with you. Don't take an extra staff or an extra cloak. Don't do that. Jesus told I think one of the most powerful stories of the kind of church that he was wanting to build you may not immediately recognize it as something that he told about the church and our mission it's actually about the prodigal son when we look at the story that Jesus told we see in Luke chapter 10 verse 34 and we know the story that there was once a good Samaritan who came came across and, and in this parable of the, the prodigal son and then we have this parable of the, the good Samaritan, these stories of wandering and being cared for and the father's heart being conveyed and that's something that he wants the church to grasp. He wants us as his people to recognise that we will have people who have wandered off come back home, come back home and home is a great word for the church. But we read also in this, this section in, in Luke that Jesus told this story of 
the Good Samaritan. And he told it to a group of religious types who saw and understood that Jesus was really saying, your religion is heartless. You don't care about people and I'm calling you to care for people. And so in this parable of the Good Samaritan, we see it's a picture of how Christ has entrusted a sacred mission with, dare I say it, eternal ramifications. I think it's fair to say that Christ himself is the one who is depicted as the Good Samaritan. And in the story, the, the central character of the story is obviously the Good Samaritan, but, but secondarily to that is the wounded man, a man who's been beaten and left half for dead, the text says. And this man was on the, the roadside, beaten, bruised, battered, near at the point of death, and a priest comes along and walks around that man, ignores him. I think that's a warning to the church not to be hard-hearted. A Levite, one who assisted priests, one who worked in the temple, he comes along and he does the same. He ignores the wounded man. So then along comes the Good Samaritan, the hero of the story, and that's Jesus, the one who picked up his natural enemy, a Jew. The Jews and the Samaritans, if you read the Gospels, you realize these people did not like each other, and for good reason. The contention goes back centuries. And so what we read here is that the Good Samaritan, the natural enemy of the Jew, picked him up, put him on his donkey, and tended to him, and took him to an inn. We read in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, he went to him bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ can do for someone who's been bruised, wounded and battered by this world. And so it doesn't stop there. The story doesn't just end there with what the good shepherd did, but the good shepherd then takes the battered man to an inn and entrusts to the innkeeper a coin we read in the next verse verse 35 and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever you spend i will repay you when i come back it might be easy just to gloss over the fact that that verse starts off with the expression and the next day in other words this character the Good Samaritan, who himself was probably going somewhere, maybe had appointment, maybe had a deadline, but he spent the night caring for a man he didn't know, someone who was his natural enemy, and yet he cared for him. He took care of him, and then to get on his way, he gave to the innkeeper two denarii, which is, I guess, the equivalent of two days' wages, and told the innkeeper, Again, I say, take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I think the innkeeper is a representation of the church. Christ, the one who takes the people who've been wounded and battered and broken by this world and brings them into contact with his church, that's you. That's me. We do church when we go to the supermarket. We do church when we go to work. We do church when we are 
on the boundary of a sporting field watching our children play. We are there as Christ's representative. We are his church. And here, God will bring across our path people who are wounded, battered and broken. And we are to care for them. And as we bring them into the life of the church, we see here, he put out two denarii to the innkeeper to care for the man. And I think this is a picture of how Christ entrusts to us, his church, the wealth, the riches, the resources necessary to get the job done of caring for a hurting, broken world and proclaim to them the kingdom of God has come. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 about the riches of Christ. It says here, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Christ has provision to give us, his church, his people, all the necessary resources that we need to get the job done. We need to recognize that those resources are entrusted to us. We see that Christ has entrusted resources and riches to us that are worth far more, far more than money. For example, in John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus, in this beautiful prayer to his Father, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. One of the most powerful treasures that he has entrusted to his church, you and I, is his word. I think perhaps we take for granted the power of the word of Christ to change a life, fill a despairing heart with hope, and we have it, and we have probably multiple copies of it sitting on our bookshelves, and we need to be prepared to read it, live it out, and share it with others. Let us not take for granted that this is a beautiful treasure that we have that Christ has given us. We're told that we need to recognize that Christ can meet all of our needs. Whenever we face need, it's an opportunity to come to him in prayer. I wonder how often we would come to prayer to seek the face of God if we had all the money in the world. Hmm. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says this, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more of how much more value are you than the birds, Jesus tells his disciples. Don't worry about the resources. I'll get resources to you. And how does he do it? It's through God's people. It is through God's people. Money, we need to understand. There, there, Jesus had a lot to say about money. The New Testament has a lot to say about money. And what you're about to hear me say is not what American televangelists say. I'm not going to make any wild promises that if you give, you will get more back. I'm not going to make those promises, even though many, many times I've heard people share their testimony and say that when they put God first, by their giving, their generosity, they never lacked. Money is actually an emblem of a person's life. We, 
go work a job, we exchange our time, that is, those parts of our life that we will never get back, we exchange our time for money. We're paid usually by the hour. The time we give our employer is, is a portion of our life. In one sense, giving is an act of worship because God calls people to honour him with the first of their wealth. And I suggest the first of our wealth begins with our time. When we take the time to turn up in God's house, we are putting God first. And money becomes a symbol of it. It becomes an emblem of it. It becomes a token of where our heart is at. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, Honour the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Jesus warned us, he warned his followers, his disciples, that money was never to be seen as our true treasure. Instead, we, we needed to regard worship of and obedient service to God as developing the kind of heart that would store up what he called true treasure in heaven or in eternity. Another way of saying the same thing. Thus, Jesus was actually saying that as we give our money in service of his word being revealed, that was where our heart was really at. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, we see, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The church is entrusted with finances that comes from God, but through God's people. And this would be given as an act of worship of God. And that the church is also using it to worship God, to serve God, to use it to promote his word so that more people come to surrender to him and as you've heard me say worship is surrender we need to recognize that this is a sacred trust that god is using his people to do he is giving to the church through people so that we can fulfill our mission of bringing people into worship of him really when we look at what Jesus said about money, we can see that how we treat and value our money is an indication of how we would treat and value Christ's true riches. What are his true riches? I think it's people. Luke chapter 16 verse 11 says this, If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches. What are those true riches? Precious souls. The people like in the story of the Good Samaritan, people who have been wounded, battered, broken, hurt by the world. And Christ wants to bring those people into salvation, into healing and wholeness. I think this is a powerful point that the true riches that Christ has entrusted to us Yes, it's money in one sense, but the, that's riches. The true riches includes, number one, his word, 
we need to be faithful in delivering it. That's why you will never hear me say, I think today we won't preach the word, we'll just continue to sing songs. No, we have to minister God's word so that it's taught, understood and heeded. And secondly, the true riches that God has entrusted to his church is those he has redeemed. In addition to these true riches, he supplements a church with things that are far less valuable like money, buildings, property and the possessions that they have. And he calls them to steward these things in a sacred mission. We've already looked at the mission, a sacred mission. So we see from the very outset of the church's birth, as we've already looked at how the church began, that people gave generously to the church because their heart was so full of worship for God that their money became an act of worship. But even as the church grew and it expanded and it required greater care and diligence on the part of the church's leadership to steward those provisions that Christ gave, it involved the appointment of a group of people called deacons, Greek word diakonos. And these, these servants of the church were responsible for managing the money. And so from the very outset of the church, the church was called to steward, that means manage, any money that was given to it as if it was Christ's. It's when the church received the finances to do what it needed to do, to care for the widows and to care for the poor and so on, that they had to change its leadership structure. And that's when these deacons were appointed. So we see that the, the accusation that perhaps, well, maybe the apostles were just abusing that money. Maybe, maybe all this incredible wealth was given to the church and the, the apostles just you know, had their snouts in the trough, so to speak, is that the case? Well, let me give you this example. This happened just around about that time where we see Joseph the Levite, named Barnabas by the apostles, Acts chapter 4, verse 36, was someone who generously gave to the church. He sold land and gave the proceeds to the apostles, it says in Acts 4, verse 37. And we see in the record of Acts that that money was actually used to supply relief to those who were in need. And in case... There is this accusation, well, maybe the apostles used it for their own personal benefit. We read in the previous chapter, as these wonderful acts of generosity were happening, but we read in Acts chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Peter saying this as he was going into the temple to pray. He says this, I have no silver and gold. He's saying this to a beggar. But what I have, what I do have, I give to you. And this beggar was lame. And Peter says to him, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And with that word of God being preached into that lame man, he did just that. He got up and he walked. And we see through the book of Acts that the church grew and it spread, as a, even though it was being persecuted. And believers were scattered and wherever they went, as they were scattered from outside of Jerusalem, they shared the word of God. And this included Philip, one of the seven deacons. He went to Samaria. We've already seen that the Samaritans and the Jews were, were you know, they were mortal enemies. 
and yet his heart was full of love for the Samaritans and he went there. And after his successful mission, we read that he called for Peter and John to come up and, and help him with what was going on there. We would call that a revival. There were so many people who had surrendered to Christ and we do wonder what the impact of Christ going in there with the woman at the well, what, what impact, what legacy that had. And so when we see Peter and John come up to Samaria, we see that there was a sorcerer by the name of Simon who saw when the apostles laid their hands on people, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. He saw something and he thought, that is amazing. And so he went to Peter and, well, we read the text in Acts chapter 8, verses 13 and on. Even Simon, the sorcerer, himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon the sorcerer saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent. <laughs> Repent of this wickedness, the apostle Peter told him. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord. If possible, the intent of your heart may also be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Which tells us <laughs> how Simon the sorcerer would have been responding to the words of Peter. Now this this episode actually became uh, coined a phrase. The phrase when a person who perhaps was not even a Christian would buy off an archbishop or a cardinal a, a perhaps a pastorate to become the priest or, or even a bishop of, of that pastorate. And that money became known as simony. Simony after the, the wicked transaction that Simon the sorcerer wanted to give and this practice is con was condemned by the reformers in the middle ages as they saw this and they sought this, the the reformers sought to restore a biblical standard for leadership which according to Titus 1 verse 7 it says all leaders must well let's read it for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach and must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain so here we have the, the instruction that church leaders are not supposed to want to benefit excessively, be greedy for gain, not to see their ministry as an opportunity to take advantage of people financially. So we see that God gives to the church through his people. We see the Apostle Paul said to, the, to, to Christians in Acts 13 verse 7, you need to pay what is owed. 
pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. And so there is a sense in which we all must be financially responsible and do what we can, and so with a church. In fact, if Christians, leaders don't do this, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, they will come under stricter or greater judgment. It's super important that we recognise that finances given to the church are used for God's glory, not man's. So we are all, we are all stewards and we are all responsible for stewarding Christ's wealth. I think we need to know why the church exists. I think we're to be like the innkeeper, to make Christ known, to know him and make him known. And by believers supporting the church in that vision, supporting the church in that mission, we as a church are entrusted. We have a, here's that word, a fiduciary management responsibility to care for the wealth that you have given, but really you've given it to the Lord. So ultimately, to care, a fiduciary responsibility to care for the wealth, resources, and true riches that Christ has given. Let's pray. Father, help us as a church to manage the resources, the wealth, the true riches that you've given us, especially people, souls. Help us as an eldership team to shepherd people well without any thought of benefiting financially or taking advantage of anyone financially and help us as a church to be generous with how we support our missions partners, mission partners like City Mission, like Compassion International, like Wycliffe, like our partners working in northern Nigeria, working in northern India, northern Asia. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in how we make Christ known and make him known to a people who do not yet know him, that we, the church, might know Christ and make him known. Now, Father, I pray for those perhaps who have had suspicion about the church and our dealing with finances or any church and their dealing with finances, help us to be a church that is transparent and does what we do with finances to your glory. I pray, Lord, that as the apostle said, we will pay our bills, we will do what we need to do. And for that, we know that the gospel, the water of the gospel is utterly free. But Lord, that water's got to go down some pipe. <laughs> the water of the gospel is free, but someone's got to pay to put in the plumbing. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would bless everyone who gives to their local church, who tithes and gives offerings and supports projects of their local church, and now, Lord, I pray for each one who've joined with me now, whether here, whether in their car, their kitchen, wherever they might be, anywhere in the world. Father, I thank you for this technology that we can take this word preached here and it can travel around the world. And now, Lord, may they know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. 
For tonight's program, select A Church's Fiduciary Responsibility from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, church is more than just a visit on a Sunday kind of deal. The church and hence those of us in it carry responsibility for those around us, even those in our community we don't know yet. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.